The opinions expressed in these materials represent the personal views of the participants and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Salient. This information is neither an offer to sell nor a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. Any offering or solicitation will be made only to eligible investors and pursuant to any applicable private placement memorandum and other governing documents, all of which must be read in their entirety. Reference to any third party, specific product, process, or service by trade name, trademark, or otherwise does not constitute or imply endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by salient. Welcome back, everyone, to the next episode of the Epsilon Theory podcast. I'm Michael Correo, Director of Communications and Investor Relations at Salient, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Ben Hunt, author of Epsilon Theory. Hey, Michael. How are you? Doing great. All right. And welcome back to Rusty Gwynn, our Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Salient. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. Now, we're really glad to have you here, Rusty, at the... Uh podcast we did before that Southern Voices, I think you named Southern it. Accents. The Southern Accents, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. That was a very well received. So uh, glad to have you back. It was there one of my go. favorites. Ben, we want to kick it off speaking about one of your recent notes, When Narratives Go Bad. Yeah. Uh, you highlighted the dramatic shift that you've observed uh, between equity investors and fixed income investors. Well, and- yeah, and and, and, and the, the the returns that they're seeking, and or the the, the income that they're seeking. I tell you, Michael, it, it's something that I've been writing about for a couple of years now, and this is why I really wanted to get uh, Rusty in, a, in on this podcast. You know, one of the first topics that I, I wrote with around epsilon theory was the notion that uh, you can really think of behaviors as a defining characteristic of investors. I mean, I mean we're not all in the markets for the same reason. It's, 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 again, getting at the notion of why are you an investor? It's a, it's a question that's not asked by modern economics. And this goes back to, you know, I was writing about language and the, 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 the notion of uh, investor uh, words, which are obviously the key of, of narratives, but different words, different narratives affect different types of investors differently because they're in markets for different reasons. And in my earlier work, I was really talking about the difference between what I call value investors and growth investors, right? that, that a value investor really has the language and the grammar of, of mean reversion. If something looks really cheap right now, there's value, I'm going to buy it now because it's going to go back to the, the truth with a capital T of, of that security, whereas growth investors it's the, the language and the grammar of, I'll call it extrapolation, right? That we're, we're, we're starting here, the trend is there, and we're going to continue moving in that direction. They're two very different languages, and they're both very old languages. You know, you can go back thousands of years and, and see examples of, of, of each of these, these types of language. And, and I was fascinated by it because most, or what I find the best work in modern game theory is being done by linguists, uh, both historically looking at these different populations and how language has shifted as the human animal has gone across the planet. But also when you think of more modern linguistic studies and the, the, the use of, of words and grammar and the way it, it clicks something in our, in our, in our brains. So I've just found that a very powerful 
toolkit for, for, for thinking about markets. But more recently, the, the behaviors I've been looking at, I, I wouldn't characterize them as being that value versus growth behavior, that why of investing. Uh, but it's really kind of looking more broadly. You've got a behavior of some investors, the language they speak is the language of income. They, they want their portfolio to give them some money to live on. Whereas you've got another set of investors and their language is that of, I'll call it returns, a shorthand, but it's really uh, capital gains. They want the price of what they own to go up over time. And the reason I was thinking about this was that obviously we are, we are having this amazing world is two weeks ago where we had the, the U.S. stock market at an all-time high and the bond market affected in price terms at an all-time high mm-hmm. where the yields were at these, these, these extreme lows. And that, that shouldn't happen, right? That, that, just, that just fundamentally should not happen. No, certainly in, in, not in sort of the traditional sense of thinking about you know, which assets move in which direction. What exactly. are the relationships between right. them? Right. What are the relationships between them? What are the correlations? And it, and it struck me that the why of investing in bonds has now changed, particularly with the advent of, of negative rates, negative yielding debt, where if you're a, a, an income investor, an income-seeking investor, I'll, I'll use the seeking there as a you know, shorthand for, for us talking about behaviors. If you're an income-seeking investors, you'd never in a million years buy a Swiss bond that had a, a negative right. yield. And, 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 and I see this in the language when I talk to, to investors or financial advisors. I can tell if the person across the table is an income seeker because when we're talking about Switzerland, they'll say, well, that, this is madness. I could never buy that bond because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not getting any income from it. But there's another set of investors, and you typically find them in the equity market, who are interested in return and capital gains. And they say, yeah, tell me that Switzerland story again, because that's kind of interesting. right? Because if what you're saying is right, that bond yielding negative one half of 1% is going to be yielding negative 1% pretty soon. Let, where can I buy one of those? <laughs> and and it's this, this amazing switch I've seen where you now have... The, the type of investor, the return-seeking investor who I normally associate with equities, I think they're the only marginal buyer of, of or the un- only unforced buyer, let's say, of, of, of negative rate bonds and maybe bonds in general. Where, where, but I, I think the that's income right. seekers, you see them in equities now because, look, I got to get some income. Where am I going to get it? I'm going to get it from the dividend of this utility stock. So, so before I get into yeah. all the ways in which I agree with you, you know, one a devil's advocate could could jump in and, and make the argument that this is this is the fundamental underpinning to a switch over from an environment, a 35-year-long environment, where stocks and bonds were largely negatively correlated or uncorrelated to an environment, much like one we've seen in the past, where stocks and bonds become positively correlated. Yes. Where bonds become treated as a risky asset. And and I think that that's that may ultimately be what's happening. But at the end of the day, the question that is behavioral, you know, one of the things that um, you know, in, in my prior life, I remember you know, we were having one of these strategic offsites where you think about, well, 
we need to come up with our core beliefs, our core statements. And, and you know, I, in my, we've all been there. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and I thought very cleverly, I, I would steal the, the sentence structure from, from Milton Friedman, who once famously said that inflation is anywhere and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Sure. And my, um, my bastardization of that was to say that investment returns are anywhere and everywhere a behavioral phenomenon. Which is to say that if the price of a security changes, it, it changed because someone said that they were willing to buy at that price and someone said they were willing to sell at that price. And underlying that decision was some behavioral motivation. But it's absolutely the case, in my opinion. People fall into archetypes. I think it's different from language, though. And the reason that I think it's different from language is that, that language evolution is a continuous process. So you can follow the, the path of the Indo-European languages and find the children languages of of the, the older versions of German going into you know, the older versions of English and as they kind of evolve, they become sort of continuous manifestations of the other languages out there. I think that investor archetypes are much more like the bipolarity in politics that you talked about in some of your earlier uh, Epsilon Theory mm -hmm. pieces where as opposed to being overlapping with other languages within that particular family, there is an inertia toward polarization. And now there may not be two poles, so I guess, you know, tripolarization or however many different investor archetypes there are. I think there's this inertia, whether it's identity politics or whether it's, you know, how, the, the pride that they take in the type of investor they are. There becomes this distinctness in their, in their incentives. And I think from that, we saw how the income and the growth investor become so distinct. I actually think there are two other types of types of investors who are as much driving this as as that characteristic which you have identified one of which is the the really very static investment policy strategic asset allocation driven investor who largely is not going to respond to changes in price or changes in risk right is going to continue to invest the exact same way they do all the time that's one the the other is I think the investor who's driven by actuarial rates of return or some future liability. And I think what you are seeing uh, in the changes in what people are willing to invest in and what they're willing to do is this drive that finally, I think this is what central banks have wanted all along. There's a class of investors, and I think these are your institutional investors. These are public pension plans, corporate pen pension plans who don't really care so much about income. Um, to some extent, they really don't so much care about return right. uh, other than achieving a particular target. And a negative returning asset like bonds in a lot of ways, so contrary to them becoming a return asset for someone who's looking up 10 years and saying, what can I earn from something? I actually think in those cases, so the the, the investors in, in, in pension plans and otherwise are actually likely to be pushed more toward the risky side of the spectrum and to provide the bid for the equity side of the equation, sort of still consistent with their return seeking orientation, but perhaps even further out on the risk curve. Yeah, look, I, I, so a couple of things out of that. The, the first is, you know, I, I used to be a political science professor, right? So I, I, I appreciate you're talking about the, what I'll call is uh, the, the archetypes you can, our metaphor could be uh, party identification, sure. right? And uh, as opposed to this, this evolutionary um, metaphor that I was using. But, but I will say, though, I think that in, in both cases, at least with the human animal on the evolutionary metaphor, but also the, the political party identification, language is so key, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, we, we can talk about in lots of studies on this where 
just the words we use to describe a candidate or a policy mean such different things, depending on what, if, if you self-identify as a Democrat, self-identify as a Republican. I think you're right. There are more than just the two parties, right? Mm-hmm. We, can, we can talk about, well, you've got the Libertarian Party, you've got the Green Party. Right? That's sure. relevant, certainly, for this election cycle. But they all have their same language. And, and we are, in a sense, and I really do believe this, hardwired you know, in, our, in our neurological evolution to, to respond to certain words. They, they, they almost weave a spell on us. Sure. Uh, and, and that's why I find it so interesting and so consistent over time and geography that there's a, there is this consistency to the words, to the language uh, that, that we use on things. But whether you're talking about political parties or you're talking about the evolutionary metaphor that, that I was using, there's a, there's a common thread. And that is that when your environment is uh, poor, whether it's for getting votes or whether it's for, you know, you're a Galapagos finch, right? And your, mm-hmm. uh, your, your environment is drying up or something. You can't change your stripes, meaning you can't change your DNA, right? The, 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 the finch is a, is a bird that cracks a nut and, you know, you, you, you can't change that. A value investor, I don't think, can change his or her stripes. I don't think an income seeker or, a, uh, as you're describing, a... Uh, a public pension defined liability uh, allocator can change their stripes. Right? So, so what what do you do when your environment changes? You have to find a new environment. Well, but not only that. I think we have to focus the analysis on the marginal yeah, individual for sure. If if they are going to change, because if if there's going to be a change in price and change in direction. You can still have 75% of the market be static. Rusty, whether you're talking about politics or evolution or markets, everything interesting happens on the margins. So if everything happens on the margin, let's let's step back for a minute. Okay. Let's look at U.S. equities. So off the cuff, market capitalization, free float in the United States, 20, 25 trillion, something like that. As now the, the market cap as a percentage of GDP is is like at something like an all time high one and a half times yeah. or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So you figure twenty twenty five trillion in U.S. free float market cap, um, around five to seven trillion of that pension plans mm-hmm. investments in U.S. equities. Figure around four trillion is invested in various four hundred one ks, IRAs, and individual accounts through mutual funds. So already we're talking about roughly fifty percent of the market cap is either in mutual funds or pension funds. You know, the global hedge fund universe is probably something on the order of $3 trillion, of which, let's be generous and say, a third is invested in, in U.S. equity. So mm-hmm. about another trillion. So you're looking at about 50 to 60% of U.S. market cap being driven by pension fund investors, mutual fund investors, and hedge funds. Now, hedge funds will separate for a minute, but about half the market is probably driven by investors who I think, like, like you mentioned, are not all that likely to change their stripes. If I define myself as a large cap value mutual fund, right. I'm not going to all of a sudden turn around and buy 20% of my portfolio in bonds. First of all, my prospectus wouldn't allow it. Likewise, a pension fund, they're unlikely to change their strategic asset allocation in the short run, which we should get back to because they probably should. Yeah. Uh, but they're going to be they're largely going to be confined both by convention, they're going to be confined by um, their strategic asset allocation and their, their investment policy statement. Hedge funds are probably on the margin. 
And individual investors are probably on the margin. And I think that's what it's the, the individual investor. It is, it and I think that's is. right. It, it absolutely is. And, and what, where, this is why I think what we're talking about is so important, because what the, the implication of what we're saying, if we're seeing that there's an environment, let's call it bonds, that is a, you know, this is the, the oasis that these finches lived at happily for many a decade, that oasis has now dried up to a, fraction of its size, what do these finches do? They have to find a new environment. They, they, they still need to act as they are programmed to act, right? but they've got to find that new environment. Why I think this is so important is that that new environment is equities that have a yield, that have a cash dividend or a dividend that they can use as cash. I'll use utilities in this sure. example, right? What that means is this isn't something that's going to go away in the next month or six months. This is a this is a fundamental shift because what I'll tell you is that when these habitats change, they change for a long period of time, and, it, and the, the the correlations the, when those underlying correlations change, they don't just flip back. So it's it's it you know we we see all these issues and and. and God knows, I, I believe it too, the valuation of utilities and the like. Nothing trumps money flows. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about marginal mm-hmm. changes. The margins are coming from individual investors. They're coming from the hedge funds or the, the institutional investors who, as you say, have some ability to act on the margins. And if they're income seekers, they're moving into these income-oriented equities. And that can go on for a long long time it can go on for a long long time but what's surprised me is that you're seeing it within income equities right you're seeing it within staples telecom and and utilities what you're not seeing as much of is the flows for example from international investors into u.s treasury bonds to drive those yields closer to what they are elsewhere in the world you would imagine there's a class of investors who are income investors who are also defensive safety investors who are looking at the yields that they're getting on the, the government bonds that they hold outside of the United States and saying, well, well, frankly, I'd, I'd be much better off investing in, in U.S. bonds or moving up the credit spectrum before we move into equities and, and allocating more to investment grade or uh, high yield credit, which has happened to a much less lesser degree than I would have anticipated given the move toward income-oriented equities. I, I hear you. I, I hear you. And, and yet, I tend to think, is, is, do you see the glass half empty or half full? Mm-hmm. When I see the U.S. 10-year at one and a half, or what did it get down to, like 1.3 something? I'm sitting here telling you it needs to go down further. Right, right. No, you're, you're saying it should go down further. And, and, and my sense is, well, it's down this far mm-hmm. because Boone's you know, the German bond is, is trading flat or you got down to like, what, negative 20, negative 19 mm-hmm. basis points, something like that. They issued, the German government did, in fact, issue. Uh, it wasn't fully subscribed, I understand, right? The bid to cover wasn't so great on their 10-year negative rate bond. But still, I, I tend to see that the that the reason the U.S. yields are so low is because you've got so many people who are seeking the, 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 the relative uh, juice Right of of, of USRAs, but I, I hear you. That spread between bonds and, and 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 bonds is quite wide. To your point, you're saying that, that spread should should be even even lower. And, and and frankly, I think the reason for that is that 
investors, these income-seeking investors, don't trust the Fed, right? And 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 I because they've they've made such a point of saying for the last well since the summer of two thousand fourteen we're going to tighten, and every time you get some sort of strong economic report, they start beating the drums again. We're going to tighten because I think they really want to. So you don't you you, you don't trust that narrative now. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. <laughs> but, I th- but I think that what people see as safe, and I'm going to reference one of my favorite movies, you know, Marathon Man, right, where uh, Lawrence Olivier is the evil dentist and, you know, Dustin Hoffman is the uh, uh, the guy who gets his, uh, <laughs> who's the victim of the evil dentist, the evil Nazi dentist, which is a, a great trope, right? <laughs> but uh, but But the question that, Lawrence Olivier, the evil dentist, is asking Dustin Hoffman while he's probing the raw nerves of his teeth with these dental instruments. He's asking the question, is it safe? Is it safe? And certainly for income-oriented, income-seeking investors, that's the only question. Mm -hmm. Is it safe? Now, Lawrence Olivier is asking because he wants to make sure his his diamond smuggling operation that the you know it hasn't been blown right so he's torturing Dustin Hoffman to get that information, but uh, we are asking metaphorically is it safe, and we're not getting a good answer from Janet, right? But but you can look at these equity markets at a utility, well, and somehow they're getting the answer yes from a. Overlevered utility that has no growth. <laughs> right, 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 right. So we trust that more to, to, to answer the question affirmatively. Is it safe? Yeah. U.S. utilities are safe. So, so Ben, I think we established in our last, our last call that we did together that you and I are both nerds. Yes, without a doubt. So we'll continue that thread a little bit because I have a question. So you've played Dungeons & Dragons before, haven't you? Maybe once or twice or five times. He lies, he lies. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So... If, for those of our listeners who haven't played, from time to time, um, when you don't know who you're playing with, every every we've talked about archetypes here. Well, the the similar structure <laughs> within Dungeons and Dragons is this thing called a, a character class. So you select right. a class, the type of character you are. It might be a a wizard or a, a warrior or a barbarian or a cleric, and you don't always know who you're going to be playing with. Um, so you don't know what the other character classes are. But every time you play, um, you you have to fulfill a certain role for the party. That's right. That's right. So if you're in a a, uh, a party, Ben, with a wizard, a sorcerer, and a thief, and you're a paladin, what's your role going to be? You're the tank. You're the tank. Right. Paladin's probably not the best tank, right? Correct. And, and so you're, you, you adapt to the scenario. So my question is, we've got a lot of people now, as you've pointed out, playing off class. They're That's playing right. a role at which they're not used to. You've got... In, you've got return investors sitting in in these bonds. Yep. What's going to happen? How do, how does a material uh, change in central happens. bank policy play out for those investors? How do they respond? What does it there look like? There is a massive rush to the exit. The moment, the moment, the ECB or the Bank of Japan hints that their willingness to be the greater fool to keep bidding up the price of Nestle investment grade debt or Italian sovereign bonds. Once they hint that they're 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 
either unable or unwilling to keep playing that greater fool role, there is an exit for the door that'll make your head swim. And that's that's a very black day. That's a black day. So now this is this is particularly frightening for me because you know I think and since I, I work principally in managing long-term portfolios, I right. tend to think about things in the long term a little bit more. And uh, you know, I think that a lot of these dynamics that we're talking about play out over shorter periods of time. And so you end, end up having this, this sort of wave function that's moving in a particular direction as it has its ebbs and flows within these individual markets driven by behavior. But as I think about the long term, let's say five to 10 year trend for overall marginal flows toward these different asset classes, my view is that the let's call it the pension crisis that, that we're facing as a country and the fact that you know we, we think of returns in sort of this abstract sense of being what is the optimal risk-adjusted return and what's the portfolio that we can build that's most optimal given the opportunities that are out there. And that answer is usually relatively similar whether expected returns are 3% or expected returns are 10%. Right. But for an investor who has a fixed return target, your objective function is completely different. And so Correct. if I'm CalPERS and I have a 7.5% expected return, that zero demarcation line, that's a big line. It's huge. It's a big line. It's and huge. so there is a there has got to be a generational shift, if it can be any more frightening, toward equities See, and this, to risky assets. I, I'm, I'm with you a thousand percent, which is why you know, somebody the other day asked me, you know, what I'd be doing if I was running my old hedge fund. I said, well, I think I'd be levered long on equities, and I'd be setting up some really asymmetric payoffs on on rates and, and, and mm-hmm. bonds. Because I, I think you're exactly right. And, and what is really striking to me, I'll go back to this was uh, something that, that Bernanke wrote in his blog. You know, he writes his blog mm-hmm. now. This was, was just earlier this year. This isn't from a long time ago. This is from March. Wow. And he's saying, well, you know, I, I think all this concern about negative rates is a little bit overblown because really... There's no difference. There's no appreciable difference between a, a policy that has interest rates at you know positive 10 basis points and one that has a policy that has interest rates at negative 10 basis points. And he comes to that conclusion because he's not thinking in terms of what we've been talking about, behaviors the uh, populations or the political parties. Or to take it further, it's the exact same kind of error in failing to recognize the difference between a difference in kind and a difference in magnitude. Perfect. It's yes. this, you know, this, uh, right. this sort of, you know, everyone imagines that that price happens as is sort of a Goldilocks scenario. It's, well, this, this, this bear likes it a little bit cold. This one likes it a little bit hot. So the price is right in the middle. The problem is father bear doesn't like porridge. He likes eggs Benedict with a Bloody Mary. And, and so finding a price when you've got differences in kind is, is it's meaningless. The why doesn't work anymore. The why doesn't work anymore. And, and I, and I do see the, the, as you, and I couldn't agree more the opportunity, opportunity is the strong word. The, the, the evolution of this, I, I think, is positive for equities. And the but the risk I think here is on the is, is on the bond side. Uh, and, and the way that that instantiates itself and creates risk for all markets, right, is that you end up with a financial crisis. Mm-hmm. When you have that exit, that that rush to the door, then where that manifests itself is in the banks. Because then the banks can't fund themselves. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I don't just mean, you know, private banks. I mean, the, the Bank of Italy can't fund itself, right? Right. right? You, you have these bidless markets and, and you, you're, you're, wow. you're not, you can't fund yourself. And so when you're illiquid, that's, that's what kills you, right? It's not the insolvency. It's the illiquidity that does you in. And that's that's my big concern. Hmm. But even staying within markets and out of the, the yeah, real, yeah, real economy, yeah, as it yeah, were, yeah. Um, you know, we for years have heard that the one of the major risks to equities was the boomers, right? This idea that we've got $4 trillion in IRAs and 401ks, most of which belongs to people who are over the age of, of 50. And as those boomers come out, they're going to be rotating from this target date fund to that target date fund, and they're going to be you know, reducing their allocation to equities, increasing the allocation to bonds. And, well, that may still happen because that's the way the target date funds are going to be constructed. They're constructed, but it's not the way the world is now. No, and, 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 and one wonders exactly what happens when, when that starts to evolve differently than I think we all expected it to, which is, again, probably a sustained generational surprised toward in favor of equities over over fixed income. What do you think it does to risk parity? Well, that's an interesting question. Well, if we are, as we... If the correlations have not just broken down, but essentially gone perverse, right? The, the, that, that fundamental card... To your point, mm-hmm. bonds as a risk asset. Mm-hmm. I think it depends on the policy response. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, if we're talking helicopter money scenarios, um, you know, I think you would see an outcome rather like you saw in the 1970s, where, mm-hmm. um, you know, for most of the 1970s, you know, the bonds were not the diversifying asset in the portfolio. That's right. That's exactly uh, right. It was real, commodities. That's right. It was commodities, real return, and real assets were the, were the diversifying asset in the portfolio. So, uh, depending on the way a risk parity portfolio is constructed, um, one would expect bond volatility to rise pretty meaningfully in that kind of scenario. So this, this yeah, just of, just a wee bit, just right? a little bit. So this this whole notion of risk parity as being a levered bond portfolio goes out the window. Yeah, right. There's there's a there's a foreseeable scenario where you know your your bond portfolio is not dramatically. It's certainly going to. It's always going to be larger than your equity portfolio, but it doesn't have to be as dramatically larger as it's now to generate the same amount of risk. And commodities in that environment could potentially be the diversifying asset, which is great for all of the uh, the retail investors out there, most of whom have somewhere between a zero and five percent allocation to commodities and real returning assets and largely because they haven't worked for 35 years and that's probably a good enough reason for yeah that's a pretty good reason it's it's a pretty good reason but you know this is one of those times where i think people make fun of the this time it's different but guys this time it's different well it's something i i you know often i think we talked about the last time also which is that politics always trumps the logic of economics and the, there is a logic to domestic politics that we're seeing playing out here. And, and part of that logic is that there is a stable political equilibrium around what the central banks are doing. Right? Mm-hmm. It's a stable political equilibrium. And, but what they've backed themselves into a corner now is they, they, can't, they can't change this policy of negative rates and lower for longer or forever without creating now that rush to the exit on the bonds, which kills their banks. Well, they can't change it in that direction, but absolutely they can central push bank, it even farther down. Of course down. they could, exactly. because that, be- they and that becomes the dominant the strategy. Fool, right? 
So it's a it's 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 fascinating. That becomes the political, not just logic, the political necessity. So, do we have time to talk about how nationalism changes some of this? <laughs> yeah, we we, we, we we should because because I think that that is the fly in the ointment, not yeah. just the fly in the ointment. That is the fatal flaw, right? That's that's the fatal flaw, which is that the 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 logic of domestic politics is never the logic of globalism. Mm-hmm. It is the logic of nationalism, and we are seeing that playing out within and between every country on earth. Where do we go from here on this, Rusty? Well, I don't know. When the correlations break down, yeah. right? That, that and, and I think that is in large part why the models either don't work. If I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about the Fed's models, right? So that you spend all your time working on Taylor rules and you know pulling your hair out over that when that's really not what matters in terms of where you should be thinking. Or you should be looking well, as an investor, and, we, and you know, forget about policymakers, but but we as investors, what do you do if the correlations no longer work and the models don't work? Well, that's specifically, I think, relating to bonds. Probably the biggest question and the one that all of the listeners should be thinking about is that bonds are now a risk asset. They're now a risk asset. And the expectation that bonds are going to be the asset in your portfolio that bails you out from an equity market bail meltdown is wrong now. It's wrong, and now it may not be wrong. Yeah. I can certainly envision right. a, you know a certain type of scenario where uh, you know equities, you know people do leave equities and run for further safety in sovereign bonds, and certainly we would expect some of that to happen. But very broadly speaking that characteristic is no longer the guarantee that I think it's been for the last 35 years. And that is so fundamental to the underpinnings of basically the entire financial system that we've built over the last 35 years. Yeah. I mean, all of, all of the structures that we've built, all of the, the, the investment portfolios that institutions and individuals and. Cause it's basically a, a two factor model, right? You've got your bonds, you've got your stocks and you're, you're putting them in some proportion. And then you have 15 to 20% in other. And that's kind of what a lot of, you know, financial advisors use to try to differentiate themselves. But at the end of the day, it's that decision. How much, what's my ratio of stock to bond, stocks to bonds is, that's driving most most of the results of the portfolio and you rely on those bonds to protect. That reliance is no no, no longer a guarantee. That's, that's huge. Right. Bonds are a risk asset. So we've continued for five minutes from you pointing out that this was getting depressing, but it's not gotten any better. <laughs> I you know and I'm, this is this is rare for me to be at a loss for words but 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 right so with bonds as a risk asset then what is the I'll call it the diversifying asset what is the how, how do you protect an equity heavy portfolio on the downside I mean I I know what people do in these circumstances you you just take your money and you put it under the mattress you go to, you go to cash right you just don't put it in anything that's the response but is there what does one do? There, there are short strategies, but God knows it's it's so difficult to be short these days. You know, while the the game is being played, um, what do you do? Well, if you're playing the long game, it's things. It's things. That is it, isn't it? It's real assets. It's things. It is real assets, and look in the short run. 
Um, you know, a lot of the scenarios we're talking about are still reasonably deflationary scenarios for, you know, some period of time. But things that cannot be, um, whose values are, you know, it's not like they won't be impacted by a drop in other financial asset values, right? People whose stock portfolios have gone down by 40% are less willing to pay yeah. for, um, you know, <laughs> as much as they were for a house. This, these are real things that happen. Right. Uh, but all the same, whenever you're talking about that level of policy-controlled markets, things are what I would own. Cash flow, cash flowing things, preferably yes. I think so. Um, to the extent that that cash flow was was operating cash flow and not you know financing generated cash flow from from you know, financial engineering, um, then I think the answer is yes. Right, right, right. It is that in that distinction so important and so hard to make, especially in public markets these days. Well, I think it's it's likely to become less true in, in some of those places people have been running in, in the equity markets in particular, some of the utilities where, um, you know, that it's not going to be sustainable to be able to generate those yields. It's either going to get eroded away by, um, you know, the prices changing, which benefits the current holders that the, to the detriment of the long-term income-seeking holders. Right. Um, or, you know, in a lot of these cases, these are, these are companies that are experiencing negative growth today. Uh, and to the extent that um, you know we're able to see technological development on the energy side um, could continue to decline even further than that in the future. So it's it's worrisome. But I think ultimately what it gets down to is that yes, I think bonds have become a return oriented asset class. I do think that's driving some income oriented investors to equity. But in the end, equity is also still a return seeking asset class. And so I think that what we're saying in this positive correlation is that betting on other investors to re-rate and increase the of cash flow is the game plan for every investor across practically every asset class. Right. From a behavioral perspective, it's the most crowded trade in the world. Everyone buying everything. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. It hopes that the next person will pay a higher price. Well, it's easy to it's easy to bet on that whenever the central bank tells you that that they're that, that they're, willing, they're, they're, they're willing to be that good. They're your guy. That they're your guy. Yeah, <laughs> I got to tell you one one last thing. I consider I'm interested in your your thought of this. When you talk about things, I think of intellectual property as a thing. Well, it's much more reliant on the rule of law, right? And you know, I think that and that and that's where I was hoping you'd go with this because when I think of owning things, I really do think of domestic things because I'll, I'll say the other correlation or, or when you look at history, what changes the the notion of property, particularly whether property can be held by a foreigner, often goes out the window, right? So, so, so when we talk about owning things, talk about owning real assets, I, I think I tend to think more domestically. I do incorporate, or I do include intellectual property, right? And that word "property" is important there mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. as as a thing that one can own. I don't know. You I'm, don't torn. Know? I'm torn. Um, you know, I think that uh, those are those are the first things that when we talk about, you know, again at the margin. You know, I, the, the first things that I think go with the populist revolution are the notions of, of the validity of copyrights and trademarks and, you know, the validity of um, these sort of permanent vestiges of what's been created by a lower class for the benefit of the upper class. I, I think that if that's the nature of politics for the next 10 to 15 years, I think intellectual property has the potential to become 
practically worthless. See, I'm, I'm going to disagree because <laughs> where I see what I see that what it, it, what I'll tell you is is that when I look at narrative creation in this populist environment, I find that content creators and uh, intellectual property creators, call it Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. they do a phenomenally better job at creating a narrative that is that has a populist veneer to it than does Wall Street. We have a San Francisco office. Yes. Yes, we I do. Would, I would say that this is changing. If you walk the streets of San Francisco, not necessarily San Mateo, but right. San Francisco, I would say the, the average person walking the streets impression of the the, the Facebook generation and the, this group of newly minted millionaires down in Silicon Valley is distinctly not positive. Not positive. Yeah, yeah. you know what? You, 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 got, you got a point there. I, I want to, there's, on this, the whole notion of populism and meritocracy and, and where this all comes from, I'm going to give a plug for this This academic quarterly a story is called the hedgehog quarterly and the, the issue the summer issue is all about they call it meritocracy and its discontents <laughs> right and 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 I, I it's it's the most interesting thing i've read in a long time so i i, I really want to it's at barnes and noble you know it's it's the it's the golden age of these uh you know quarterlies and uh <laughs> yeah well the printed just, as a closing note i mean Meritocracy is a concept and a term, if I'm not mistaken, was actually coined in a negative way as part of a dystopian Correct. description Correct. of in a, the, in the, the, 1950s. Most, the most horrible wor- world yes, one could the, the, conceive it was, of. It was the worst possible world. That's exactly, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, that was before Hayek wrote The Road to Serfdom and, and taught us all the truth about markets and people and behavior. Yeah, so there you go. Fixed there us you all. Go. <laughs> All right, Rusty, thanks again. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks, guys, for joining us. And be sure to subscribe to Epsilon Theory Podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, and leave us a comment. Thank you. <laughs>